Well, if you ever had the opportunity to stop by a shopping mall or a bookstore at any time during the mid-1990s, then you probably recognize this image. The magic eye posters, stereograms, or most of us just lovingly refer to them as those cool 3D poster things. Now, for those of us who might not recognize these kind of images, it looks a little blurry, it looks chaotic, two-dimensional, it's a digital image, but if you allow your focus to adjust to where you look through the picture, behind the picture, rather than at the picture, all of a sudden, 3D images come to life on the page. Okay, there's depth and texture there that simply wasn't there before. And there's things, there's everything on them. You have birds or geometric patterns or dinosaurs or whatever. This is actually a starship, so that was kind of fun. Um, but if you were anything like me, then they were really hard for you to see, okay? They're really difficult. And you'd have all these guys at the mall, you know, saying like, well, you have to cross your eyes or then, and then relax your eyes or uncross your eyes, move forward, move back, and nothing worked. And it's like all around me, there were little kids and people that were saying like, oh, mom, do you see the dinosaur? And you're like, like whatever, there's nothing there. There's no dinosaur. It looks like my TV on channel three before I've turned on my VCR, right? Okay, and so... It's like all these people around me were seeing this hidden reality that was right in front of me. It was literally staring in me in the face, and I couldn't see it. And that really frustrated me, okay? Because I wanted to see the deeper picture. I wanted to see that. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have that same need, that same frustration of, I want to see the fuller picture. I want to see the deeper picture, not just recognizing Letters on a page. That's the difference between like recognizing letters on a page and reading. One of them you just recognize letters. The other one you're actually to put together pattern and coherence and extrapolate meaning from it. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how we as believers in Christ, as followers of God, cannot just be stuck at looking at what's on the page. I want us to be able to see through the page and get a fuller understanding and a deeper appreciation for what's going on around us and through us every day of our lives. And the way I want to tackle that is I want to ask ourselves three main questions. The first question we're going to ask is, what exactly is my need? And then we're going to move to, well, what would that look like? And then finally we'll conclude with, well, so now what do I do about that? Okay? So, to answer our first question, what exactly do we need? We first need to understand something about ourselves, and that's the way we experience reality. And the main thing I want us to take away from this is that our perception is often incomplete and not necessarily true. Take, for instance, this amazing picture taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. It's a pretty amazing picture, right? It's not exactly your common garden variety. This is not what I see when I go out in my backyard and look through a telescope. It looks incredible. But the reason why is because this is a composite image. What do I mean by a composite image? I mean that whenever Hubble takes a picture, it's not just taking a picture of our normal eyesight, of like Roy G. Biv, right, the rainbow. It's taking pictures of microwaves and infrared rays and Roy G. Biv and then ultraviolet rays and x-rays, taking pictures of all of those. And the only way that our eyes can see that is if it translates those frequencies, those wavelengths, into Roy G. Biv, into our perception. Because here's the, the, 
the narrow truth of it is that we have a very narrow band of wavelengths that our eyes can actually perceive. We've got three kinds of cones in our eyes. We've got one that receives red, blue, and green. Okay? There's creatures such as like the mantis shrimp has 16 different kinds of cones, different kinds of color receptors. They see bands of light that we can't even comprehend. They see polarized light, circularly polarized light. They see all kinds of light that we just don't have the computing power to understand. So if we and a mantis shrimp were to both look up at the night sky, it would be a totally different experience for each of us. So while we're in the optical world, um, let's take it a step further. Not only is our perception incomplete, even what we do see is not necessarily true. Let's take optical illusions, for example. Take a look at this one, okay? Those diagonal lines are actually not crooked. They're parallel. They're straight. How about the next one? Black dots. Where is the black dot? Answer is there's not a black dot. All the dots are white, but in our peripheral vision, we always see what's out there as a black dot. What about this last one? Which side of the scale is higher? Well, the answer is they're, they're both even because our brains are trained to see that gravity and that tilt in the scale, okay? So that's why these are fun because they are playing off the fact that our brains are taking in information and they're forming conclusions. They're, they're constructing a spatial reality for us, a reality that's ultimately wrong, our perception is often incomplete and not necessarily true. So now I want to take this to a philosophical level. And this is where these, sort of, these two ideas kind of come together. Okay? Let's go into an introductory philosophy class where you're studying the nature of reality. And this might be a lecture that you would hear. Good morning, class. What am I holding in my hand? A ball. Very good. But here's my first question. Can you actually see this ball? Yes, we can see the ball. We see the ball right there. And he says, no, you cannot see this ball. What you do see is the light that reflects off the ball. You get the optical leftovers of what this ball does not absorb. You get the light that reflects off. So you are always one step removed from the reality that is this ball. Right? Like, okay, great. So you can't see this ball. No, no, I guess I can't see the ball. I just see the, the light. Okay, second question. What color is this ball? This is a white ball. Where's the trap? And they say, well, we know from science that white is really a combination of all the different wavelengths in one color, right? But, so your brain is telling you this is just one color. It's white. But that's not actually what's happening. Actually, this has all of the different colors inside. You're like, okay. So what you're telling me is, one, you cannot see this ball, and two, the color that you do see is not necessarily an accurate representation of reality. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I guess that's right. And it's usually about that time philosophy students start checking their schedule and wondering why they've paid so much money to enter into a philosophy class. And the others just walk out of class doubting their own existence. Oh. So our perceptions are often incomplete and not necessarily true. So let's come back to our first question. What is it that we need? So if we are this subjective, interpretive, moving platform, then what we would need to discern reality would be an objective 
stationary, immovable perceptive object from which could speak in and tell us reality. Okay? And it just so happens that the Bible has a word that perfectly captures this. It's called an apocalypse. Okay, I can tell I probably lost a lot of you right there. You're like, okay, apocalypse, I didn't really see that coming. But hey, if we're going to talk about the end of the world, it might as well be in a church, right? Probably a safe place to be. Okay, but here's a spoiler alert. The word apocalypse has nothing to do with the end of the world. Okay, in fact, I'm going to give you a couple of verses and I want you to kind of see and want you to glean what is the range of meaning in this word apocalypse. Then we'll talk about what it means. Okay, look with me in Genesis chapter 35, verse 7. This is after Jacob had seen the Jacob's Ladder incident. Genesis 35, 7 says, He built an altar there, an altar, and called the place El Bethel, because there God had apocalypsed himself to him when he had fled his brother. Or take a look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things apocalypsed belong to us and our sons forever. Proverbs eleven thirteen: Whosoever goes about slandering apocalypses secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Matthew 10, 26, this is the words of our Lord. Do not be afraid of them, for nothing is hidden that will not be apocalypsed, and nothing is secret that will not be made known. So I'm sure we're all quick to notice that to plug in the definition end of the world doesn't really fit nicely in any of those verses. So why is it that we have this idea in our head that apocalypse means the end of the world? It's probably because of this next verse. Look at Revelations 1.1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The very first word in John's revelation is the word apocalypsis. Okay? And since most people take revelation to be about the end times, the end of the world, then I think we just simply import all of that context into the word. And so just the word apocalypse we take to mean the end of the world. But that's not actually what it means, is it? From the verses that we just saw, what does the word mean? The word apocalypse means to uncover, to reveal, to where something that was once invisible is now visible. If you've ever been to the Omni Theater in Fort Worth, it's one of those curved movie screens where they've got this you know, really cool projector and, and it kind of feels like this 3D experience. Um, there's a spot in their pre-show lineup to where they're showing you like you're in a jet plane and you're going, you're like, ah, it's so great. And then they turn off the lights and they show you the sound system that they're using and the lights turn off in the theater and then the lights behind the screen turn on and you can see the speakers like hanging from the rafters, okay? That is an apocalypse. And it's the same is true with God's apocalypse. It's where the light comes from shining on the screen to shining from behind the screen to where things that were once invisible become visible. That is an apocalypse. So now that we have a good feel for how the word apocalypse is used in a biblical sense, let's come back to our first question. What exactly is it that we need? We need a revelation, an uncovering, from an outside, stationary, objective point of reference. We need an apocalypse from God. So now let's move to our second question. Well, what would that look like? 
what does it look like when God apocalypses something to his people? Well, although they come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, as we're about to see, one thing is true for all of them. When God apocalypses something to his people, it changes the way they see their entire lives. Firstly, it changes the way they see their past. Okay? We see this in Genesis chapter 50 with Joseph. Joseph has endured a rough ride. Okay? Uh, It starts with him getting sold into slavery by his brothers who staged his murder. Right? Um, He becomes, you know, a master inside this uh, Egyptian lord's house okay, is wrongfully accused of rape and thrown in prison for something like upwards of 10 to 13 years. He interprets a dream for a couple of his cellmates who get out of prison, one of them does, and then Pharaoh himself has a dream that he needs interpreted. God gives Joseph that interpretation. And then pretty soon Joseph finds himself second in command of one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time, okay, And so his brothers have a famine up in Israel, and they come down into Egypt to ask for food. They encounter Joseph. He's revealed himself to them, and they are rightly afraid for their lives. But what does Joseph say? Look with me in Genesis 50, verse 19. It says, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose, so he could preserve the lives of many people, as you can see this day. Joseph could see his past clearly in light of what God had apocalypsed in the present. Joseph could now see that if he had not gone through those events, he would not be in the position that he was now. The past made sense in light of the present. If you've ever learned to play chess, I really hope that you learned from someone who actually knew how to play chess better than you. Assuming that to be true, after you lost a game of chess, I hope that your teacher would have said, now let me show you the strategy that I used to beat you. Okay, And as they show you the moves that you did, the apocalypse happens. You're like, oh, so you moved here so that my guy would come out here, and then after I did that, you could beat my... Oh. The past makes sense in light of the present. But God's apocalypse doesn't just shine light on the past. It also shines light on the present. Now, this is the most common form of apocalypse, and it forces us to rethink where we are in the grand scheme of things. Because oftentimes, it turns out that we think we are one place when it turns out we're actually somewhere completely different. Okay? And this is what, where we are in the book of Malachi. In Malachi, we talked a little bit earlier um, about how we understand reality be kind of a construct in our brains, something that we kind of manipulate and massage to where it makes sense. But the thing is, in this case, we don't just do this on a visual level. We do this morally. We do this spiritually. We do this emotionally. And that's where we are in Malachi chapter 1. In Malachi, let me kind of give us a background of what's going on. Israel is back from the Babylonian captivity. The temple is rebuilt but it's just sort of hobbling along. The priests are, are doing their, their due diligence, but it's only half-hearted worship, okay? Israel is not prospering. They're not wealthy. They're not rich. They're just getting by, okay? And in the priest's mind, they were actually doing really good. They were the martyrs here. They were the ones who were being faithful and keeping their end of the bargain. 
And God just obviously was not blessing Israel, which was unacceptable. In fact, if anyone had to account for their behavior in this deal, it was going to be God himself. And God loved his priests too much to let them sit in their illusions anymore. And so finally, he speaks. And so we see this volley going back and forth between God and his priests. He opens up. God says, I have loved you. I have shown love to you. And the priests say, how? How have you shown love to us? God says, like this, like this, like this, like this. And then he says, but your actions show that you dishonor my name. In fact, you despise my name. And the priests say, like, how have we despised your name? What are you talking about? And God says, when you do this and this and this and this, the priests didn't get it. They thought they were here. God says, no, you're actually right here. And finally, God comes out in Malachi uh, chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God was saying, just stop. Just stop. In fact, I wish one of you would just shut the whole thing down. At least you'd be being clean about it. It wouldn't be this half-hearted nonsense where you think you're doing something, but you're really not. This isn't worship. I'm not good with this. I wish one of you would just shut it down. See, although apocalypse can be a wonderful thing, it is not always the most comfortable thing. And I know I find that true in myself because I find that I act just like those priests. It's like I have an idea of how this situation goes. I have an idea of how it stands between me and this person. And it just so happens that in every one of those situations, I'm the good guy. You know, I'm the protagonist. In fact, it's them and what they've done that have caused me to be in the situation that I'm in. So it's really their fault. Do we ever do that? <laughs> An apocalypse says, you think you're over here. But let me show you how, what it really is. Our perspective is often incomplete and not necessarily true. Now, God's revelation can throw a new focus on the way we understand past and present, but it can also change the way we see our future. Take a look with me um, in the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar has just had a dream. It's a pretty crazy dream. It's a dream of this huge statue. It's got a head of gold, and it's got you know, bronze and, and copper, and it's got these iron feet with clay, and it's kind of weird. And then this meteorite comes out of nowhere, destroys the whole thing. The meteorite is so big, it fills the entire earth. The end. Kind of a weird dream, right? Well, God gives Daniel the interpretation of it. Listen to what he says to King Nebuchadnezzar. We're in Daniel 2, verses 30 and 38. It says, you are the head of gold. Now after you, another kingdom will arise, one inferior to yours. And then a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule in all the earth. Then there'll be a fourth kingdom, one strong like iron. Just like iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, as iron breaks in pieces all of these metals, so it will break in pieces and crush the others. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. God had shown Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar what was going to take place in the future. 
But what I want us to notice here historically is where God had put Daniel in history. God had put Daniel in a veritable mix master of human history. Okay, just from scripture, we can see that Daniel served in the courts of at least four kings. Okay, there were empires, the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then we get the Medes and we get Darius, and then we have the Persians of Cyrus the Great. He's in the courts of all of these kings. He's literally seeing empires rise and fall before his eyes. This is not just election year politics, you know? And through all of that chaos, we don't ever see a record of Daniel saying, God, things are really crazy. Will you please calm things down and get me out of it? No. God shows Daniel the future. And that future gives him the confidence and the hope to live in the present. It wasn't going to calm down for Daniel. It wasn't going to calm down. So I want us to notice here that Daniel prays in ways that help him live for the current moment. Because how do I live underneath the Babylonians? I'll tell you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I live underneath the Medes? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, well, what about the Persians or the Romans or 21st century America? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we have seen God give various apocalypses throughout the Old Testament. And they varied in size and shape. Some are personal, like with Joseph. Some are dealing with a, a select group of people, like we saw in Malachi. And then others are dealing with like states and kingdoms, like what we saw with Daniel. But still, all of these pale in comparison to God's ultimate apocalypse. An apocalypse on a global, on a cosmic scale, one that changes the way we see all of creation and human history as we know it. Because God doesn't just send a word into his creation. He sends the word. The word in human flesh. The word that John says in 1-1 has been from the beginning. The word who was God and the word who was with God. The word who reveals the Father. Jesus Christ, a walking, talking apocalypse. Colossians 1 will describe him as the image of the invisible God. Literally a physical stamp that you can see that represents an invisible object. You want to talk about not seeing the ball. This is God who is spirit that you cannot see became flesh and dwelt among us. God, invisible God, fleshified before us. You want to talk about not seeing the ball. God, the invisible God, came into the Roy G. Biv world. He moved his spectrum to, to stay right here where we could see him. The image of the invisible God. You want to talk about not seeing the ball. The Father is the ball. You can't see him. You're always one step removed from reality from that Jesus Christ, but we can see the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Philip says, Jesus, just show us the Father. Jesus says, don't you get it yet? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't worry about the fact that you can't see the ball. You can see the light, and that is enough. Jesus Christ, 
a walking, talking apocalypse. And you can't just walk away from an apocalypse like that. You can't just put something like that back in the box. John says in John 1.14 that we have seen his glory, the glory that only comes from God, full of grace and truth. He's like, I can't unsee what I just saw. The dude just blew up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The guy just blew up in glory. I can't unsee that. I now know things that I can't just unknow, flip a switch. I have to do something with this apocalypse now. That's what I want to talk about next. Have you ever heard the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion? Um, C.S. Lewis tells, us, tells the account of his conversion in his book, Surprised by Joy. Okay? And, you know, C.S. Lewis in his past was a staunch atheist academic, and he describes this scene as he's wrestling in his bedroom. And he's been wrestling with this thought that God exists and Jesus Christ is his son. And finally, this one night, he has to surrender to it. And he's like, I can't deny it anymore. I believe it. Dang it. I believe it. I didn't want it to be true. But there it is. He describes himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. (laughs) He literally describes himself as being drugged into the kingdom, kicking and screaming. He's like, the apocalypse was dropped in his lap and he couldn't deny it any longer. I'm glad he responded to that apocalypse because that would lead him to write some of the most influential books of the 20th century in apologetics. It would lead him to write a spiritually rich and deep children's fantasy series that we know as the Chronicles of Narnia. Because C.S. Lewis had an apocalypse and he had to take it to where the evidence led him. So first, let's nail down our first two questions from the beginning. What is our need? We need an apocalypse. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of different things, but God's fullest apocalypse came in the form of Jesus Christ. So now, let's kind of turn to our third and final question. What can we do about it? And so I first want to draw a line of distinction between what we normally or naturally do with it and what we should do with it. Because believe it or not, there is a difference. So one of the first and probably the most benign ways that we handle God's apocalypse is just to ignore it. A great example of this comes from Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus has just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples just had this disastrous public encounter where they could not exercise a demon. Jesus comes in, cleans things up, and then takes the disciples aside to give them some teaching time, okay? And as they're on the road, he notices them huddled together talking. And so Jesus decides to turn around and lob a theological hand grenade in the middle of his disciples. Let's look what he says. Read with me in Mark chapter nine. It says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And so they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, So what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. In the middle of their journey, 
Jesus turns around and tells them the mystery of the ages, things into which angels long to look. Their response was crickets. Nothing. They just continued on as if Jesus hadn't spoken at all. After all, they were arguing about who was really the greatest. Why? Because I don't think they wanted to wrestle with God's revelation. That would be difficult. What if things were different than what they had in their mind? I don't know if I could handle that because here's the hard truth is we don't always want God's apocalypse. Church, imagine how different it would have been if the, if the disciples had stopped and interacted with Jesus on that apocalypse when he revealed it to them. How might their journey have been different? I think we ignore God's apocalypses at our own peril. Now, Paul has a slightly different approach in how we understand apocalypse. Um, here we see the second way that we handle this, and that is by actively suppressing God's revelation. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Paul doesn't exactly allow for a benign neglect. He says that the natural human condition is to actively suppress truth. That's they know it, but they choose to do different. And it's not just suppressing it. It's suppressing it in unrighteousness, right? That's like seeing a truth and then covering it up with a lie. Or seeing what's right and covering over it with wrong. But a lot of us might look at that and say, yeah, Rob, but that's, you know, you'd have to be pretty bad to do that, right? I mean, like, we don't, like, actively suppress truth, do we? Are, are you trying to say that my first instinct is to lie? And this is how I would answer you. Um, in 2010, Pamela Meyer put out a book called Lie Spotting. As the title implies, um, it's a book that's aimed at teaching people how to detect deception, okay? And though that skill set would be great anywhere you go, this was particularly aimed at corporate America because at the time of her writing this book, lies, fraud, and deception was costing corporate America up to $994 billion a year. That's roughly 7% of annual revenue. And so her research took her deep into the myriad of ways that we practice deception on a daily basis. So she looked at facial expressions, body language, deceptive gestures, exaggerations, power moves, and bald-faced lies. According to her work, on average, a person is lied to about 200 times a day. Okay? And three-quarters of those lies go by unnoticed. In fact, even when we are on our game, when we are on we can detect lies about 56% of the time. That's just slightly better than a coin toss. So what does this tell us? It tells us two things. It tells us, one, that we do not realize how much we lie. Because I remember when I read this book, I was really irritated. And I was like, I live my life based on the truth. I will not lie. And I started looking at my actions. I started looking at my facial expressions. My, oh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> My reactions were not matching what was going on in my head. And two, it tells us that we don't realize how many lies come at us every day. And just in case you were wondering, when they were analyzing the communication between spouses, 
the stats did not improve very much. So why do I mention that? Because it's telling us that we trust our computers. We trust our brains. It shows us that we believe the vast amount of information that we put out there to be true. And it shows us that we believe the vast amount of information that we are interpreting to be true. Even though the statistics show us that we are breathing in and out deception constantly. So I'll ask myself that question. Do I consider myself to be one who actively suppresses the truth? I would say for me that it's more, of, it's more hard to stop suppressing the truth for me. Because like it or not, I am always controlling the narrative of my life. If I am on my game in self-control, then I am presenting to you exactly what I want you to see. Because if I were to let you see what's really going on in here, it's ugly. It's messy. It's not pretty. And that's just what I'm trying to put out there. I also control the narrative on what I take in. If I have an opinion about you or you or you, then I'm going to look for that information that corroborates my opinion. So even the information that I get in, I want it to support and uphold my version of reality because that's what makes sense in my brain. So do I consider myself one who actively suppresses the truth? Yes, I do. I'm controlling exactly what goes out. I'm controlling what comes in to make sure that my little reality is not upset by it. So yes, I think it applies to me. So what are we supposed to do? If the only two options so far have been to ignore it or to suppress it, you got anything like happy? You have a happy meal, Rob? Something that we can do? And I actually do. I have two encouragements for us this morning. Things that we can do as followers of Christ when it comes to God's apocalypse. The first is this. When it comes to God's apocalypse, we can allow it to penetrate. Perhaps my favorite apocalypse in all of the Bible is the one that comes to the apostle Paul. He's on the road to Damascus and a bright light shines from heaven and he hears a voice, Jesus' voice, and it changes the course of Paul's entire life. But he didn't just go out guns blazing right at first. He had to stop and he had to process this information because it was a huge paradigm shift for Paul. He was a Pharisee, okay? His idea of the law and God's law were over here and God says, no, God, Christ is your righteousness now. It's a total paradigm shift for Paul. And so look with me in Galatians chapter one. This is how he describes it. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. For I did not receive it or learn it from any human source. Instead, I received it by a apocalypse of Jesus Christ. But when the one who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not go and ask advice from any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me. But right away, I departed into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and get information from him. I stayed with him for 15 days, but I saw none, none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Paul went away for three years to process this new information, to let it sink in to his very core. This revelation changed his past. He would say that although he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and blameless in the law, the things that he used to consider his pride, he now calls his shame. 
It changed the way Paul saw his present. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, you can put me in chains, but you can't put the gospel in chains. You can't hold the gospel. It changed the way Paul saw his future. He says, when I consider the present worries and the struggles of this world, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be apocalypsed in us. In fact, all creation eagerly waits with eager anticipation the apocalypse of the sons of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ became the center of gravity for Paul. It changed everything about him. And church, the exact same apocalypse has been given to us. My question is, have we let it sink in? Have we allowed it to change us, to sink to our very core? Or are we suppressing the truth, controlling how deep it goes, making sure it doesn't get too uncomfortable? I don't want to be one of those crazy people, right? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suppress the truth. The last thing I would encourage us to do, church, is not just to let the truth sink in, let it penetrate, but after it is done that, then walk forward inside that truth. Embrace the revelation. Can you honestly look around over these last 12 weeks and say that there has not been some form of apocalypse? I know there are a lot of issues that are flying around and none of them have easy answers. But all I'm really asking you to do this morning is just ask yourself, is God revealing something to me? What has been brought to the surface and what can I do about it? Because I know for me, just during this time of quarantine, it has brought a lot of tough issues up to the surface, a lot of tough questions to the surface, and a lot of tough answers. I can almost hear God sending questions to me back after back, just like we're in the final chapters of the book of Job. I can hear God talking to me, Rob, is, is your identity really based in me? Or is it wrapped up too much in these other relationships? Your marriages, your friendships, your coworkers. Let me shine a little apocalypse there. Is your identity in a job or a paycheck, Rob, a sense of accomplishment or productivity? What if I took that away? Would you really still trust me to provide? Let's shine a little apocalypse there. What about your health, Rob? What if I took that away? Would you still trust me? Do you still trust me? Did my prerogative change? Is my job to make you holy or to make you happy? Because you used to know the answer to that. Let me shine a little apocalypse there. What about the racial tensions that are going on around you? Are you as blameless as you think you are? Are you really loving your neighbor as yourself? Is that darkness I see hiding in the back of your heart? Let me shine a little apocalypse there. Church, I know these are hard questions. And they are anything but comfortable. So no, God's apocalypse does not mark the end of the world. For us, it marks the end of a lie. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My desire for us, church, this morning is to walk forward in that truth, walk forward in that freedom. 
Now, as for those posters in the 1990s, the 3D posters, most of us can see them without too much practice. Okay? We eventually get it. But one thing that's absolutely necessary to see those 3D posters is two working eyes. Okay? So people like my father, who lost sight in one eye because of a car accident years ago, try as he might, he will never be able to see those 3D pictures or see a 3D movie. He doesn't have that second eye. But church, for us to understand and pull in God's apocalypse, we need two eyes working. We need an eye of sight and an eye of faith. And as those two eyes work together, what at first seemed like a two-dimensional haze of sin and darkness and death and ruin, with the eyes of faith become a 3D picture. And we see that there's really design there. There's beauty there. There's purpose there. A new world appears before our eyes when we use the eyes of faith. And my encouragement for us, church, is to walk forward in that apocalypse. Walk forward in that truth. Walk forward in that freedom. Will you pray with me? God, we want to give you this time. And we want to let you be God because your perspective is complete. Your perspective is perfect. Ours is incomplete, imperfect, and even the conclusions that we come to much of the time is not necessarily true. So Father, we crave your words into us. We crave your words that you would speak into us. Show us our past. Show us our present. Show us our future. And God, give us the strength to live in these times, live in these moments, loving you with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We pray, God, that your apocalypse would fall on soft hearts, it will sink to our very core and change us from the inside out that the entire course and purpose of our lives will be wonderfully changed because of the truth of your son. We give you glory this morning because there's nothing that we have done. This is all of you, Jesus. To you be all the power and glory and honor and dominion forever. Amen. Now, church, at this time, I just want to invite you. If God has spoken to you, if there has been an apocalypse, I want to give you time to let that sink in. Let that take hold. If you have accepted Jesus Christ for the first time, then I would encourage you to text New Start to 94000, and we'll get you some literature, and we'll help you as you start your walk with Christ. And at this time, we're also going to uh, take our offering. You'll see information on the slides. It'll give us ways that we can do that. As we're about to close in worship, I want to invite us, wherever we are, to join with us. We're going to sing, Your Love Awakens Me. And that song speaks of an apocalypse that the love of God reveals and brings things to life. Where we were once dead, where we were once asleep, God's love awakens us. Let's respond in worship.